Welcome to Opera San Jose Talks About Moby Dick. This is Larry Hancock. I'm the general director here, and I have with me today Noah Stewart, who is singing Greenhorn, and Ashraf Sawaliam, who is singing Queequeg. And I'm asked to have these two characters together because it's actually their story together throughout the opera. They sort of begin this show, and then Greenhorn is the last man standing. And so I thought it'd be fun to have these two. And, and sure, we've had lots of good talks so far, by the way, guys. Um, and we don't try to stick to business. Um, I like to know personal things about the artists, and the public likes to know personal things. And it's one of the few opportunities that I actually get have the, oppor- t- the chance to sit with artists and talk to them. So it's one of my favorite things is when we do our little podcasts. I always look forward to this time. Everything is marked in, in your bio because I'm dyslexic and my eye has to be drawn to the right place. Yeah, yeah, of course. And as you can see, the whole page is marked. <laughs> the whole page is yellow highlights. You have sung everywhere and a great deal of work in England. Yes. And how, did you start out there? No, you know, most people think that I actually am from the UK, which is not true. I'm from Harlem, New York. I read that. And you went to the Harlem School for the Arts. I went to the Harlem School for the Arts, yes. And And Juilliard. And Juilliard. uh, But most importantly, I went to the LaGuardia High School, which is the fame, you know, fame, I want to live forever. The first. (laughs) The fame. Which is the first arts high school that that we had in the country. And I went there and and that sealed my fate for music forever. (laughs) Yes. Well, that was a good fate to seal. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's lovely. Oh, it was great. I mean, look, I, I would say LaGuardia, it all began there because although I started singing early on uh, when I was about, I want to say 11 or 12 years old, um, and it was because my mother was a single parent and still was a single parent, um, she always encouraged me to enroll in anything for free. That, that was an activity before or after school because she didn't have um, the funds to afford a babysitter. So I was on the chess team, I was on the debate team, I played basketball, I played volleyball, and choir was the last sort of group activity that I, that I, I raised, I volunteered for. And my choir teacher, she heard me sing. She said, well, you know, Noah, you have a, you have a nice voice, but, um, but um, we need guys, so, <laughs> so you're in. And she said, you know, um, if you, if you practice, it's like math or science. If you practice your singing each day, it will become stronger. And um, and I, I was just kind of drawn to this because I, I, singing was not something that I, that came very natural to me. Although I liked making people laugh and I loved being on stage, um, singing was it. It took a little it took a little t- little bit of time, but within three years, I had already um, won a competition. And because I was in New York City, we got, had many opportunities to sing around the city at the mayor's house. Or uh, I also did um, b- backup vocals for Sesame Street, and I did the seatbelt commercial. So oh, you have that in common. Yeah, yeah, we, we'll, yeah we'll get to that <laughs> in time. Yeah, and so I was really, I was really lucky, and to be kind of thrown into the world of music. And so I was equally at home in Bach. Schubert, uh, or Eight Misbehaven uh, from Broadway, or Hair, everything, music was music. And um, it wasn't until later, until I was uh, at, at high school and then Juilliard where I really focused on opera. But at the time, I, I was just kind of groomed to sing everything. And it looks like you have sung a little bit of just about everything. <laughs> yes, yeah. 
So Ashraf, Ashraf and I just had lunch together. First time we've had a more than a two-minute conversation in the in the canteen. And oh, it's your fault. You hired me for two very involved roles this year, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm always true. in rehearsal. So well, and I and I'm never able to spend time with anybody. But Ashraf, I discovered I don't like Ashraf today over lunch because he's from Cairo. And all my life, I have wanted to go to Egypt since I was a tiny child. And there he's lived there, has a house there, and singing all over the damn place, mostly in Southern California. Lots of work down there. Yeah, I, I, I started my, um, my, my, my what we call the A-house career with Seattle Opera. And then it sort of started just basically ping-ponging between Seattle and San Diego a lot. But I've, I've worked all over the country. Yeah, I've, uh, I see that. I, uh, you And know, abroad. And abroad. I mean, unlike Noah, I actually did not grow up with music. I grew up in regular government schools in, in Cairo. I, I did some like music in the music groups. But in Egypt, of course, it's not classical music and it's not as intense. I did not have particular affinity for Arabic music in terms of performance. So I didn't find my place until much later when I happened upon opera. Uh, I had an aunt who took it upon herself to uh, to introduce me to Western classical music, and I fell in love with opera almost after sleeping through the entire performance of Aida, the first one I ever saw. Uh, and it was that I, good, huh? And then I woke up, and it was like, you know, it was like just like a teenager. I was like, "What the hell is that?" And uh, I and I slept through it, and then I woke up through, uh, for the very end uh, of the of the the, the, the tomb, tomb scene. scene as they sing Otera Dio, and I instantly was transfixed. That's the I, most magical music in that the, opera. And then I came back and attended every performance of that season of Aida and Traviata. And the rest was history. Uh, at the time I was, uh, that was in high school, but I went and studied architecture, uh, architectural engineering in Cairo. And But I sort of con- continued to listen to opera and go to orchestra concerts. And then one, uh, one year, 1987, we had two international productions of Aida outdoor Productions. The one in Luxor was in May '87. Irene, the lady right there on that wall, she yeah. was at that performance, not in but at. And yeah, and I, I was actually there. And uh, and then the one in uh, at the pyramids, 1987 September. This is when I felt I just wanted this to be my life. And it was during a final dress rehearsal. And funnily enough, it was a lot of stops and starts in a final dress rehearsal with Grace Bumbry and Nicola Martinucci and Gennady Dimitrova and all those ma- major names that came to Cairo to sing this in front of the Sphinx. And I said, I want this to be my life. A year later of, of soul searching, I, I, I found uh, the person who became my voice teacher. Uh, and I met him by pure accident at a canceled concert. Because at the time uh, in Cairo, the Cairo Conservatory and the Cairo College of Music did not have continuing education departments, so nobody would give me the time of day. And then I, uh, he started teaching me, and I graduated from, from engineering. Then the same year I graduated, 1990, I became a member in the Cairo Opera Company. Cool. At the dawn of your youth. That's, yep. a, that's wonderful. Yep. And then I came to the States, uh, 90, 1992 to 96, studied, a, did a bachelor and master's uh, at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Went back to Cairo, had six very busy, very rich years, actually. These were what I call my young artist program. I, uh, I worked as music director for dubbing Disney into Arabic. I was a, a house uh, principal at the Cairo Opera Company. 
and uh, taught also at the American University in Cairo. So there was so much to be learned while so much to be done, and I grew so much during those six years. Once I reached, once I reached the ceiling of what could be reached artistically in Cairo, I decided I needed to go into the, the real ocean, the arena of, of competition, which is fiercest in the States. And, you know, my four years in Boulder sort of got me bitten by the bug. I fell in love with Boulder. I fell in love with America, and I wanted to move back. So I came back in '02, started a DMA, and, uh, and then I immigrated. Became cool. a citizen five years ago this February. Well, we had a lot of fun in abduction from the Seraglio. That was grand and crazy. <laughs> grand and crazy. What a, what a nutso opera. And this guy's playing Osmin. So Actually, it was great. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I got to hold on to my beard. <laughs> you know, yes. what's most important to keep, <laughs> keeping your look as an artist, as a yeah. person. Yeah. Well, that's, that's when I was a student. I never sang on a professional stage, but uh, as a student at university, I was in every opera. And they insisted in putting me in overall curls. So mm. I had to go to the theater two hours before my makeup call while they set and dried my hair. Yikes. Wow. And then I went and was in a production of Funny Girl with Lainey Kazan. That was not a student gig, obviously. Yeah. They did the same thing. So, she had nice hair. Well, <laughs> must not have been very nice since they took so much time to fiddle with it. Jeez. Yeah, that could be quite a challenge, arriving to theater. So, I mean, most people really don't know what all it takes to to get ready for a performance but it's still it's still daunting for me to get ready if the, you know, the curtains at eight and you get there maybe at 5 30 it's it's already you know and the opera's over maybe at 11 o'clock i mean when you think about it it's a it's a it's a it's full-time a full job it's, it's a, a full, full day. day and you've already had a day of, of doing whatever you needed to do but um it can be quite exhausting and and quite challenging just kind of keeping the momentum up you know, for the, right, for, the, for, the, for the right performance, because sometimes the real singing doesn't really get going. Sometimes it's right at 8 o'clock, sometimes it's at 9, sometimes it's at 10, and so you have to kind of keep your energy yeah. going. And, and, it, and it, I mean, we have to force ourselves to sleep in so that you have, we have the peak of energy in the evening. When you but need if, it. If you're an early riser or if you have a, you know, some, some singers actually have a day job. Mm. Uh, we're, we're lucky enough not to, but, uh, but you know, some singers do have a day job and then you have to go and perform at night. But sometimes we force ourselves to stay to three or four in the morning so that we can sleep into noon or one so that we're not tired and, you know, with our energy almost gone by seven or eight. And not that either of you have this issue, but people are constantly coming to me and say, why are opera singers so fat? And I said, well, first of all, they're not. <laughs> but imagine this life. Oh, he's very disciplined. He's, he is on his way to the gym every morning. Well, not every morning, but um, I remember I, I lost a lot of weight when I was at Juilliard, when I went to, was in college. And I lost um, about, I went from a size 42 waist to a 36 within a year. And I did it because I knew that I was a tenor at the time. And I knew that my voice suited was more suited for the. I always wanted to sing leads. I never sang Campa Mario roles. Not that there's not, nothing wrong. Not that there's anything wrong with singing a Campa Mario role, but the roles that attracted me and that I think my voice is best suited for were the heroic leads. Of course. And I knew that 
if I was going to be a lead, I had to look like my characters. And so I, for me, each character that, that, I, that, I, that I undertake or I choose, or someone asks me to do, it's really important for me to feel like the character because then I can really I can I can do whatever is, is needed for you know if it's Jose who's a killer and and who's 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 very athletic, um, then it's important for me to feel like that. And uh, I I saw that because do you remember um, VHSs and Laserdiscs when they're coming? Oh, sure. Yeah, and I remember it was this huge. I used to work for the the Metropolitan Opera gift shop, and I would sell one of my jobs. I'm sure Ashraf, you had you know tons of jobs too. Um, but one of my jobs was recommending rec live recordings or recordings as well as um, videos. And I remember seeing a trend and I thought, wow, okay, well, if this, if, if video is the next phase of opera, then I probably, you know, I, I need to concentrate on this. And so I started going to the gym and uh, it just kind of stuck. It's not easy, but it's like anything, it, it takes discipline and... I don't know. And, and you are truly disciplined about that. But but I also it's it, it, it can be quite lonely and 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 challenging traveling around the world. You know, not out of a suitcase. So for me, the gym is a, is is my sacred is my is my sacred place where my safe space where I can kind of work on my roles and memorize my lines, and uh, and so work out. And uh, so for me, that's what the gym represents. Well, that's a good thing to have. Better than a bar. Yes, liquor and the voice don't really mix. <laughs> no, they yeah. don't mix at all. <laughs> not at all. But in, in my, I, when, when my friends ask me about be, people being heavy, it's you get off work sometime between eleven thirty and twelve thirty at night. Yeah, and you're starving. You've yeah, and you, you you've spent so much energy yeah. in, in the performance. You your blood sugar is low, and you're and starving. The, the and you go straight out and eat a plate of pasta mm. yeah, or a burger. Or, and you know, you're going to have some to come booze down. with it. Yeah. And then finally you're yeah. going to go to sleep right after a huge yeah. meal. Yeah. And it's a way of life. It's not something you do once a month. It's something you do several times a month. Yeah. Yes. And it doesn't yeah. take they many years asked, of that. They once yeah. asked Marilyn yes. Horn why, you know, why are uh, opera singers plump? They used the word plump. I think it was an Opera News interview. And she said... Oh, they said, is it genetic? Is it a predisposition? She said, no, we just eat too damn much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is how she put it. And I mean, I'm I don't, I'm not a I'm not a gym bunny like you are at all. So I really have to actually watch more what I what I eat so that I don't become huge. Uh, and uh, so what I try to do is that I have snacks during the show, so that by the end of the show I'm not completely famished. So like I have a banana and I have a protein bar. And you know, so in, you know, between scenes, if you have good twenty minutes, you can take a bite of this and a bite of that, or in the intermission, and it kind of keeps keeps the blood sugar level coasting along. Yeah, coasting along. Just as long as you have too much sugar. Yeah, exactly. Because then crash and burn. Mm -hmm. But I also think, I mean, not to harp on this, but in terms of the eating, you know, the the eating kind of <clears throat> conversation, when you're singing, you're if you think about it, your mouth is open and sound is coming out. It's coming out of your mouth. It's coming out of yeah. somewhere, and so it's almost like talking a lot. If you when you're finished talking, you want to. It's like a, if you're if you're out with your friends at a cafe, you talk, you talk, and you have a sip of coffee or a sip of tea. So the fact that, that you've been talking for three and a half hours when you're finished, you do want to put you want to replenish some the orally. Thing. Yeah, you the, want to the oral energy. Yeah, or just or did you kind of want to reverse the action? And the first action is usually eating or drinking. Yep. Singers are very oral. Try, and yeah. and and 
there's something very sensual about singers, mm. just as individuals. And so their lives tend to lean toward the sensual, whereas an engineer, maybe not so much, yes. right? But, but as artists, I, I think in every field, artists tend to lean toward the sensual because you're taking in the world through your senses yeah. and you're giving it back through to other people's senses. It's a constant communication We're in the business of way. beauty and truth. So appreciating things. That's why I could never go into the field. <laughs> <laughs> What we do is beautiful and art has to have truth in it. And this and it takes a lot to, to, to harness that and focus it and present it to, to the audience in a you know in an artistic quote unquote artistic form. So we have a lot of appreciation for the better things of life, even though, you know, Most of us can't afford that, you know, the finer things in life. But we appreciate everybody them thinks that opera singers them. are so rich, and I think, yeah, there maybe five of them are. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, yeah. there's always about five or six opera singers who are really on top of the world, and everybody else gets up and goes to work in the morning, you know, and, and struggles well, if you, through life. If you life. actually make ends meet primarily through music, make a living through music, then you've done very, very well. As yes, you have done very, very well. Yeah. That's exactly right. And singing in all the great houses of the world. Still, you have to get up and go to work. You're, it's not cushy. Oh yeah, no, I no, mean, no. If, yeah. if it's if you really, if someone asked me, oh no, you know, you have the the best job in the world, and it's 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 a it's a labor of it's a labor of love in many ways because what many people don't know is that it's a very expensive art form. Um, yes. When I finished Juilliard, you know, they always would say, oh, you know, <clears throat> to you know, how to get to Carnegie Hall from, from Juilliard. And it's like, you know, besides taking the one train or the bus, it's practice. Practice room. And um, you never know when your chance will come, but you the most important thing is to be ready. And, you know, when I graduated at 21, I was not ready for a career. And I remember singing for, remember um, Antoine Guadagno, famous conductor. He used to, I mean, he was a European conductor and also was at Palm Beach for many years. And I'm sure he, he uh, worked with... Uh, Irene? Yes, And um, he said, oh, I, when I sang for him, he said, oh, you know, really good voice, but you're too young to sing leading roles. Um, um, but, but, but if you sing a Compromario Mario role, you're going you're gonna to look strange because you're, you're just, you, you look out of place. And so I said, what should, my, what, what should I do? And he said, well, maybe grad school is for you or, or you just have to just take lessons. And so I thought, okay, I won't do the grad school thing because at that time I already had four teachers and <laughs> really... <laughs> I really had quite a, lost my trust in voice teachers, to be perfectly frank. Um, I decided to get a job, and I got a job at Carnegie Hall, and, and also got a job waiting tables. And and when you're done paying, you know, having an hour of voice lessons, maybe $115 to $300 an hour, um, when you see that money gone, it becomes very daunting as an artist to, 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 want, to, to want to even do it. Because this is, this is $200 of a week out of your paycheck before... Expenses. Expen- mm-hmm. Your real, your adult yeah. expenses. Yeah. You know? And if you actually do coaching with somebody, not just a voice lesson, as well, as well there's the coaching time. And that's why in, in my undergraduate school, singers were absolutely required to be pianists. You had to have piano proficiency. Really? You had to be able to read. Through. If you were a voice major, you had to study piano all the way through. That's great. Because the cost of ha- having someone teach you your role... How ridiculous. Yeah, that's great. Well, actually, that you can't yeah. figure out. But coaching you, is not really for teaching you the roles. I mean, all I of us it. graduate to, you know, to, but, to be able to, to learn, teach ourselves our roles, but sort of to refine. There and, are a good number of singers yeah. at the top end yes. 
who do not read scores. Oh, we know that. Yeah. They simply don't. Yes. And someone yeah. has to play those scores for yeah, them. Because you yeah. don't just learn your lines. That's the big... When Opera San Jose has been around for a long, long time. <laughs> and we started out 35 years ago mm-hmm. hiring singers who were maybe not even finished with their undergraduate training. Yeah. And they weren't going to Juilliard. Mm. And they would learn all their their bits. Yes. But they didn't learn anything between their bits. So they didn't know when to come in. There are artists who still do that. <laughs> no, there no, are artists who still do no, that. You used the wrong word. There are no artists yes. who do that. Yes. There, there may be, be people yeah, who do that, who, but they are not artists. Yes, yes. An artist absorbs a score. Yeah. An artist spends so much time with the score in their bed, spending their time to find out what is in this opera. What is in this thing that I'm part of? That's an artist. Yes. No. Leonie yeah. Riesenick was an artist. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, because of Irene, uh, I was Irene's chauffeur, basically. I was her graduate assistant at San Jose State. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, I was the first hire at Opera San Jose. <laughs> so uh, I took Irene to, to have dinner with Leonie Riesenick and Tatiana Troianos and Cheryl Mills and so many others. And I got to hear them talking. Of course, they never talked about business. They talked about each other and their children and all that kind of thing. But little pearls would land on the table. And I was, as a voice student, Mm -hmm. I was grabbing pearls. And what I understood was those, if you're going to be a successful artist of any kind, and I mean any kind, you have to be a person who is content to be alone for six hours a day Mm. because you're going to be with your score or at the piano or whatever your instrument is. Or in bed going over words. In bed going over that score and digging through. And 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 there wasn't always wonderful, easy translations to lay your hands on. So I remember in in my, I started uh, undergrad in 1968. And I remember going to the big library, not the music library, because they had the giant five, six-inch-thick German dictionaries. Because the first thing I get handed is Schubert, right? Yes. Yeah. And trying to translate and writing all the meanings of every word, of every phrase of that poem underneath sure. each word until I could figure out which one the, the poet was trying to, to yes. use, right? Yes. <laughs> what is his intention here? Yes. Now, uh, in the front of your international score are all the translations just sitting there for your Schubert tunes, right? You don't have to do that anymore. But but... Everything now is online. And so That's much wild. is. But you know what? I, uh, I write the supertitles for Opera San Jose, mm-hmm. and um, almost always. And when you look at these translations, you know full well that's not true. That is not what, what is being said in this line. And, and so I, I always am working with three different translations and my big German dictionary yes. <laughs> because I want to know the truth of that line. Yeah, there are no... I mean... There are no substitutes for, for you know, like, like we live in a big, like, cooking, like, cooking is a huge part of culture. There's, there are shortcuts in life, but there's nothing like, you know, the seven or eight hour ragu. <laughs> there you go. You okay. know, with, you know, with fresh ingredients. And there's nothing wrong with frozen if you, you know, of course, if you're, uh, if it's a financial situation or a time situation and you want to cut corners, fine. But in terms of uh, really learning anything, whether it be driving a truck or planting a garden or learning a score, 
these things take time and we live in this industry. I mean, look, we're in Silicon Valley, aren't we? Where it is, you know, this is the, this is the place where things are moving so rapidly, but we're in this art form that only works not saying it can't work if you do it, but it, it only works if you take your time. The music, is, it's, a, it's a process. It is not a, a processor like a computer. <laughs> it's a slower, um, more organic uh, way of life and, and a career choice, and it's not for everyone. I would agree with that big time. I'm going to jump us into something called Moby Dick. You've heard of that, right? Yes. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> We've been living it. We, we're, we're staying actually in, in apartments uh, above each other. And uh, we, uh, he, we practice constantly. But it's funny because I know the moment Noah wakes up because his bedroom is on top of mine. <laughs> because he starts humming his notes in bed like the moment he opens his that is eyes. Not, you, do, you do the same thing. What do you mean? I, you do I do. Of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> There's no other way. It's, there is no other way. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the most challenging things I've done, actually. And that it starts with this ungodly piece of literature. This, I mean, Melville, I'll, in Europe, the reviews of Moby Dick by very important people mm-hmm. were this is one of the most remarkable pieces of literature they'd ever encountered. Mm. Yeah, and what he was trying in, in in writing this splendid novel had never been done before, and was so remarkable, and that he had written some of the greatest characters in all of literature. Something of such magnitude and and insight and detail is incredible. Yeah. And of course, we hadn't a clue over here. Uh, we rejected it out of hand, ruined his life. He lived 40 more years, and nobody bought anything that he wrote. You know, every time I hear that story, it always sounds so unbelievable to me. But it's, it's, it's history, you know? It's, it's it, always happened yeah, to it, the best of people. People who are ahead of their time. Yes. yes. As happened to Mozart. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as happened to Bizet. Yes. There are people who are just ahead of of the crowd, and well, he was he was he wrote he, he wrote a novel the the contents of which was an indi- indictment to everything that goes on in life at, at that time between whaling and the relationship with otherness, uh, slavery, as well as you know the the the, the model for male to male interaction and what kind of friendships they are. He basically transcended and and just spear like he threw a spear into all that and shattered it well in the well, novel also, yeah i think he 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 kind of challenged he challenged what 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 the meanings of of life were um and i think that each of the characters in the book represents a, a sort of a facet of ourselves as human beings i think we all have a little piece of 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 each of these, of each of the characters in us, inside of us, so I think that human beings are very complex, and I think that's why, that's why we relate so much to, and that's what, the story and uh, and this opera. And there's even though everybody would like to make Ahab into a great villain, I see him as a great victim. Oh, absolutely. Yes. He he is a victim of the assumption of human dignity, mm-hmm. that human beings are meant to master the world. And that God, when he says, the whale is only a mask, he's after something beyond the whale. I would smite the sun 
mm-hmm. if it insulted me. It insulted me. Because I'm a man, and I am the top, and these things below have no power over me, and yet he's lost his leg. The great indignity. Mm. And he, he's now, he's lost it. Absolutely. He's lost it. And, and yet there's everybody else. Greenhorn and Pip, I have to say, are the two characters that I am most enchanted by. Uh Pip is magical to me. Mm. Pip stops time in this opera. Yes. Pip stops time. Because when you go crazy, you see truth. And it's... Uh, and I even question what Pip is. When Pip... When Queequeg, when you save Pip and bring that child back on board, I'm not sure what you've brought back. It feels to me that Pip is otherworldly at that point. He is, yeah. Otherworldly. He's been cracked. I have seen him. He drowned with the others, or the rest of them. I think that's it. He drowned with the rest of them. Pip is on a complete, he's completely separated from us. And a fascinating concept. But also Ahab takes takes a special affection and liking to Pip after the incident because Pip has seen the encounter with, with, with the brutal nature when he almost drowned. And, 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 and foretells yeah. the end of yes. Ahab yes. caught in ropes. Yeah. And, you know, even though it is more in the book, the, the sort of that special bond now you know, past, the, past the trauma, it's, it's not really shown much in the opera. Well, there is the but, lovely moment. Yes. When Ahab says, go below to my cabin, and you'll find Pip. Yep. And Pip looks, says, do you understand? And that's a, the only tender moment that Ahab has. He has a moment of remembrance with Starbuck. Yes. yes. But his only moment of tenderness is between, with him and that child. Yeah. Um, I'm, this, 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 this thing makes me crazy. Oh yeah, when I first was reading through the the opera libretto, you know, it's it's always so funny how life is and how uh, how projects come at us, or or it, it's, the the timing was just right. I think I think also also why this novel is is so fantastic, and also the opera is this that the story is it could it's so relevant, it, it it's so relevant in history throughout history. Because it deals with the, I mean, Ahab, it, it, he's obsessed, but I think, but our, can we, we're all obsessed. We can all be obsessed. We, we all um, want perfection, I think, or, or strive for it. And I think he's- You're a, wrong. And I think that he, <laughs> I think, I think that, or one, he wants, I think that he, you know, when you're so, I think that we all, when we're so focused at at our goal or we all have goals you know look look at like new year's this past you know what is your what are your new new year's resolutions everyone has these kind of these these goals and and i think sometimes we can get quite lost in being so focused on getting that promotion or getting or having two 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 kids in this and then your life will be okay it's always like okay ahab then if you did catch moby dick then then what would you be a happy guy but he's so unrelenting in his and his obsession that he doesn't see anything 
or anyone around him. This is the thing that's so, for me, that's so fascinating because I'm thinking this could be anyone. This could be any one of us. I mean, well, that's holding on to grudges is a is is an, an age old problem. But it's not so much a grudge. I think it's a, it could be a, it could be a goal. You know, it's like it's it, it's you know an opera singer. It's like someone said, oh no, you know, um, your tenor when. You know, so when 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 is when you when are you gonna be done your career? And I said, well, I hope to have my my voice for a long time. But he's like, oh, when are you gonna let? You know, some people just need to let it go. And it, and it's you're a bit young to even think about no, that. No, but you know, but it's, <laughs> it's but it's, it's it's comparable to Ahab. He just can't. It's not so much a grudge. It's just it's just a, Obsess, the hope. Obsess, obsessiveness. Yeah. Do you know what I think I'm hearing? Mm-hmm. I think I'm hearing a man who is obsessed. Me? Oh yeah, I am obsessed. And I'm a, I love opera. And, and, and projecting the... that onto other people who don't have this gift. Really? Yes. I love. I mean, I think opera is the greatest art form that we've ever had in history, and I think Moby Dick is huge in its storytelling and huge in its characters, and the score lives up to it in every in every way. It's it's overwhelming. It is overwhelming. I mean, to me, it's, it's, a, it's just a, to watch it is overwhelming. It is. It is over overwhelming to be part of it as well. It would be much mm-hmm. more over. Yeah. I mean, really, to be cast in it. Yes. It, that's a whole different. I mean, but to me, I mean, it's a, it, there is a lesson to be learned, you know, to to differentiate between what what is to hold on to and what is to let go of. It's a lesson in in the consequences of not letting go of certain things. And, you know, I mean, it's of course, it's important, actually, in careers like, you know, high, you know, high skilled careers like the arts or medicine or that to be to be a bit obsessive about that. And of course, you have to have a bit. Well, if you're going to get there, you've got to be. obsessive. absolutely. And most of us, most of us end up with no personal lives because of that. But on the other hand, you know, you can obsess, you can obsess with with being hurt by someone uh, in this case, a whale, or it could be an ex, or it could be uh, a boss or a colleague who wronged you, and you sort of you you focus and you get consumed by your rage against that perceived injustice or actual injustice, and it can destroy your life. Just yesterday, a psychologist retired was addressing the Friends of Opera mm-hmm. about about Ahab, mm-hmm. and they were talking about what's going on with him, and that's exactly what it was. He gets caught in this fugue yeah. of of hatred and re- and the need for revenge and the need to control that which actually controls him. Mm. It's a personality type, but it's it, it's thrown into an extreme which is called madness. Oh, absolutely. So he is insane. And we watch the progress. He arrives on that ship already crazy. Yes. But he reveals it over time until finally at the end. He's he's gone. But I mean, he the has the chops of, of of a tyrant leader. He knows how to rally people, how to poison their minds with with a perceived fear and a perceived great evil to get them all to be that 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 the arms and legs. And he knows he's won his... over everyone except Starbuck. Yeah. And now he sets out how to win over Starbuck. Yeah. The one who wouldn't drink the Kool Aid. Yeah. The one who wouldn't drink the Kool Aid. Yes. <laughs> the grog. Yeah, the grog. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he he actually refuses to drink the you know the grog. I think it's enormous insight on the part of Jake. Actually, it was Jake who who said, "Can we not have call me Ishmael until the last statement of the opera?" And Gene sure said, "Sure, right." Mm-hmm. But that teaches us this huge thing. In in the book, 
we get this introduction, which yes. we don't have in the it's opera. The fir- it's the first utterance in the book. The yeah. warning. Well, sort of. I mean, there are many, 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 there are many, many pages before you get there. But yes, <laughs> when the narrative starts, it's called mm-hmm. me Ishmael. Yeah. Uh, and I and I uh, trip over the 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 way it's pronounced. I grew up Southern Baptist. Not that I was a Baptist, but everybody was. Mm-hmm. Ishmael. Yeah. Is yeah. what we all grew up with. Yeah. But evidently, in the nineteenth century, it was mm-hmm. Ishmael. So that's what it is in the opera. And also, I've been listening to a lot of scholars talk about Moby Dick over the past couple of years since I decided we should do this. And they all say Ishmael. So it must be something correct of its time. Um, But at any rate, he doesn't start out Ishmael. We forget that it's a memoir. He's writing what happened. He's not telling you the story as it unfolds. He's, he's omniscient only in that he's already been through it. And he is Ishmael at the beginning of his memoir, of his remembrance. Yes. Yeah. He becomes Ishmael by the time he has lost everything. And who is this kid? First of all, he has no family. He's trying to make it on his own. He's not doing a very good job of it. He has basically no money, right? I mean, he tells us that right off the bat. He yes. can't find a place that he can afford to stay in because he ain't got no money to pay for it. Yes. So here he's looking for a place to stay and ends up with all these guys and is having to share a bed because he simply doesn't have enough money. And he says, you know, a, a, a dark, rainy November in my soul. I misquoted that. When he finds himself staring into coffin shops, and bringing up the tail end of funerals and having to fir- fiercely stop himself from stepping out into the street and knocking people's hats off. Yes. And when, when he finds himself in this position, so that means this ain't the first time, yeah. mm-hmm. he goes to sea. Yeah. Because he has nothing on land. He has nobody. He's alone. He's going out to sea to find himself. And actually, I think he's going out to sea to find somebody, to find a community, to find something he feels part of, because he's clearly yeah. alienated here. And what is the apex of the romantic ideal in literature is the alienated individual. That's the whole point of the whole period. The one who's different. Yeah. The other. The alienated guy, the other, who has no means of reaching in, but who needs one. So he finds a place, a handful of people, what, 20-some-odd guys on board the ship, yes. They're going to be thrown together all the time, and he's never been whaling, but he's been to sea before, so here he is. And at the end of this thing, the one person he loves is Queequeg, who loves him. And what has happened? He's lost everything. Alone on a coffin in the ocean for two days. And now he has become the cast out, the Ishmael of Muslim history. It's, I should say, Arab history. Uh, That's a big fucking deal. (laughs) (laughs) He has lost everything. Yes. He also actually, interestingly enough, when, when... In his first encounter with Queequeg, he has a huge problem with Queequeg's chanting and praying and fasting. And he already has has a thing against the conventional 
religion. Religion. So he has, you know, all the prayers and fasts and Ramadans, and and he actually calls uh, calls Queequeg's fasting his Ramadan yeah. in the book. Is when he fasts from because he knows you know, something talking, of yeah. Islam. I yeah. don't know what he knows, but he knows so something he, I mean, of Islam. He, he's already his soul is already <clears throat> cracked open against convention. He's 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 talking about his feelings, chasing the dark Novembers and and stopping at at funerals of strangers. He's already different. He already knows that he doesn't fit. So he needs to, he needs to find something that that he can fit into. And of course, you know, most sailors really are in in this case are a mob. I mean, they're they couldn't be more ordinary if they tried, and then he fi- that's why he he actually finds himself much more identifying with the other other, who is different from all these you know people who basically drink the the Kool Aid of of Captain Ahab. You know, I, I thought this thought today. Um, how, for me, I mean, you know how when I was when I was growing up, they had commercials on joining the army, joining the service. Remember, remember they had a lot, a lot more propaganda out there, you could say that word, or, or just advertisements, yeah. or advertisements about joining the the army, the navy, the marines. Oh, the marines were a big push, you know, yeah. It was just like every, every you know, G.I. Joe, like every, yeah. every boy and girl wanted to go into the army. And for me, it seems there's a parallel between, that's what whaling did. You know, it was just that, you know, the army, you know, it, it was adventure. Belonging. It was if you if you couldn't afford to go to college, you know you you could go to the army. You learn a skill like engineering or mechanics or something, um, or pilot, and then you can and and that would parlay pay, into a, a profession later on. Yes, and it's, it would seem like the, th- the thing to do because you found yourself, and it seems like it's this, not that I've ever I've, I've, I've not um, enlisted, um, but it seems very similar be- because. I don't think war is talked about a lot, if I'm if I'm mistaken, in the book. But it seems that there's a parallel between the whaling. It represented this 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 life of adventure where one is one one gets to find himself with other people. Because also, I think the people on the Pequod are all the guys are all very lonely. I think they're extremely lonely, and they they need each they need Ahab in a way because they are so lo- they have no compass. Pun intended. They have no um, aim in life, and so they much rather listen to this crazy person than to be their own boss and their than own. To be man. just cut loose. Yeah, and so you know what? This guy is crazy. Let at the next port, I'll get off. Well, I'll because you know there are other ships who come come through, come in. I think is it Gardner's ship comes. They could easily have, have t- said, "I'm going to go home. I need to be with my family." But they are so dependent and so lonely and desperate i think that they they relinquish their power over to ahab and the thing that i was just mentioning about greenhorn Mm. ishmael being isolated and alone every principal character in this show is exactly that they're all isolated and alone uh stub he has his one buddy and and that's set up but they're all of them quick He's a cannibal from the South Seas, completely outside his element and alone. But by choice, though, he actually was the son of the chief. Yeah. And he he saw the whaling ship. He asked the captain to that if he could join, and the captain refused. So he takes a canoe out and holds on to the rope of the whaling ship and forces the captain to take him on board. So that was actually a choice. He already had you know a place in society and people and a culture that he belonged to. 
and he wanted to go on purpose to search outside his comfort zone. But and outside this is how Queequeg becomes Queequeg. Yes, but but outside that zone, he is isolated. Yes, yeah, but that's by choice. And Starbuck, yeah. mm-hmm. who is a family man, your ordinary guy, yeah. wife, kid, wants to make money for the family. Mm-hmm. He, he also is alone on this ship yeah. because his his problem with Ahab has forced him into a position of solitariness. Yes. Ahab is solitary. Yes. Mm-hmm. Greenhorn is solitary. Everybody's alone for a different reason. But there they all are. So it isn't just the principal character. It's all the principal characters. They're all alone and seeking for... And the the moment between uh, the two of you, Mm -hmm. when when you announce, when this is over, I want to go to your island. I want to go to Coco Voco. Yeah. (laughs) Because you're the one I choose. and, And that reaching out in the world premiere production... Uh, when they're up on the mast in the crow's nest, and they were reaching for each other, the mast was too big. They couldn't get to each other. They were on either side of the mast. You couldn't walk around. So they're reaching out, and their hands got to be about 10 inches apart. Mm-hmm. And that's as close as they could reach. They couldn't reach each other. And I, that was heartbreaking. Yes. yes. Right? They're reaching for each other. They just wanted to touch hands and couldn't. Um, because, go ahead. Yeah, because it's... If each of the characters had that at home, then perhaps they wouldn't be on the Pequod. Exactly. Because they wouldn't, they go there because they're not satisfied. Um, There's a need there that is just not, that is just not met. Even sometimes when you have a family at home, because remember uh, uh, Starbuck, Ahab, uh, and Ahab are both married with kids. Yes. And, I mean, as I said, Queequeg has a whole family situation to which he belongs. But they, again, they sort of they go away either because it's their profession or history, family history, or another reason. A need. A need. Yeah. That they, uh, and they end up on a boat where you would think all these guys are thrown together very close. They're go- it's going to be natural camaraderie. <laughs> but still, when I moved to California from the Deep South, from a family who's lived in the South since 1607. Where are you in the South? I'm curious. Uh, I was born and raised in Florida on okay. the Gulf Coast. Okay. But we moved there from Georgia. Hmm. In about 1820. Then, yeah. And then they moved to Georgia from South Carolina and moved to South Carolina from Virginia and moved to Virginia from London. So it's a <laughs> long time of being in the South. And uh, when I came to, to settle, I came here to live in Palo Alto and Atherton. And I, I remember writing home, I said, I feel like a well-oiled ball bearing. <laughs> Everyone is so courteous and so polite and no one touches anybody. Here, yeah, really, yeah. It felt hmm. compared to where I grew up. It, it. The I grew up in. South. A, I grew up in a small town. My grandparents were the postmaster and postmistress, and had the general store. Okay, so wow. everybody was there. Yeah, I'll never forget when I finally left to go to college. It was like, at last, I'm gonna. My mother, her teacher was my first grade teacher. I mean. <laughs> Everybody it's, knew me. It's and, an interesting, the whole touching thing, because, of course, you know, the, the, the whaling industry all came out of that Anglo-Saxon enclave, you know, in the Northeast, where, you know, men had their, their they, they did not show affection towards each other much on land, but, and then they're thrown into crammed quarters. And yet, you know, because I come from a really touchy, huggy-feely culture, and yet, uh, you know, they, they, Again, so even when even though they're so close, there there is no real closeness. Uh, 
uh, it comes down to particular relationships in the 19th yes. century. Yeah. The 19th century is very, very different from the 20th century. Yes. There have been a couple of times in history, we chatted about this yeah. at lunch, a couple of times in history where suddenly friendships become sexualized. Yeah. And in the 19th century, that was not so. Mm-hmm. It's after Freud that friendship becomes sexualized. Hell, your relationship with your own parents becomes sexualized mm-hmm. in Freud. I mean, everything mm-hmm. circles around your genitals. Uh, but I don't believe that's natural. I think, I think Freud was completely wrong because the closest friends I've had in my life have been guys with whom I was certainly not sexual and one gal mm-hmm. with whom I have never been sexual. But they're the closest people in my life, in my whole life. But the interesting thing is the, the sexualization that happened basically severed the physicality between human beings, that any physicality is looked at as sexual. And then there's the other trip. So there's is, no, I mean, there's no affection now. And, and that, is not, that is not, that cannot, that, that does not stand the risk of being taken as sexual. Well, I think... Exactly. That's think exactly the point. I think it depends upon the circumstance and depends upon the people and depends upon the... I was... I don't know. I was I'm actually the... making that comment uh, in Cairo in December because I was like, I was going to the gym, and then I said, "It's amazing. I live in America where pe- where people barely hug. There's a huge personal space, you know, especially among you know Caucasian people, a big big personal space. Yet when we go to the gym, everybody's naked in front of each other in showers, while back in Cairo, showers are all separate stalls. Nobody sees anybody naked." But everybody out, you know, on the street touches and hugs and men walk arm in arm and everything Holding is a hug pinkies. and a kiss, you know. So it's, it's interesting that's, that, that, that duality between what is okay and what is not okay in, 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 from in culture different cultures. To culture. From one culture to culture. And in Japan, uh, where it's very, very closed, mm-hmm. and yet there's communal bathing as a standard practice. Yep. No, it's, uh, we, we have... I don't, Western culture has gotten all caught up about sexuality, all caught up in it. And it, it's like the most important thing in your life, except it's not. It's just the obsession, the whole, the, the shame attached to it. You go to Europe and it's a different ballgame. I think it depends. I think everything is relative and it depends where you are in, in America, where you are in Europe. I think where you are, you know, different towns, different cities have different... Uh, Different ways of life, and I think it's just. I think you, we. I think we can't be so specific. I think we have to be careful, and we have to just. Wild generalizations yes, don't apply. Yes, I think we have to be very <laughs> careful with that. I think, um, but I will say that one of the things I'm really enjoying about about this production and 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 Moby Dick is is the camaraderie. You know, in in a traditional romantic, you know, La Boheme or Marriage uh, um, of Figaro, you don't see you don't see guys around you know the first time the first day in rehearsal i was so excited because i heard four other tenors you know singing a flats <laughs> and singing a naturals and singing b flats and you're thinking holy cow what you know usually if you're if you're a, a tenor in a production you're the only one there's one tenor there's one baritone there's one soprano there's one mezzo right the father the lover the the maid whatever yeah but in this you, you they're all you know they're all guys you're the, around the same age um and it, it's so it's such a visceral sound i mean I, I grew up singing in the choir, uh, singing choirs um, as, a, as, a, as a young student, and I, I missed that. I gotta say, I missed hearing, you know, 30 men singing together. There's a, so in harmony, there's a strength there um, that, is, that is so 
great and and, and I have to say, our chorus. Oh, yeah, oh my God! Kudos to our chorus. It's just phenomenal, and yes. the sound of all those basses rolling out—it's yeah. so warm and so rich. A couple of guys in the cor- in the show uh, are in my military veterans chorus. Oh wow! The the Starbucks uh, double. He's he's a bass of the chorus, and there's a guy named You're Greg. The Ahab double. Yeah, the Ahab That's double. Right. What did I say? Starbuck? Starbuck. Ahab mm-hmm. double. And then there's another guy, Greg. He's he's bald and kind of short. He's also in, in my veterans chorus. Yeah. And it's been such an eye opener for them to hear this sound that I've been begging for and they don't and, and, and trying to get them to work on it and try to do it. No, and I I can't wait till we're up on the mast. Tonight is when we're gonna try the mast for the first time because we get up to be on the ma- we get to be on the mast and watch them sing and dance a lot. This and, and you you're on the mast a lot Uh-oh. as well. Is that tonight? So, yep. Uh oh, we're flying. Uh, it's like Peter, we're flying tonight. It's like Peter Pan. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, <laughs> actually, I mean, I, something I wanted to, 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 to talk about in terms of Queequeg's sort of evolu- level of evolution as a character and, and acceptance and loving of otherness, he reminds me very much of a character that is associated with the Bay Area uh, in, in Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, to me, is kind of the male version of Anna Madrigal. Oh, that you know that the transsexual character who is all loving all benevolent all accepting of everybody and all the others because of course she represents the ultimate otherness at least within this culture well and, certainly when that book yeah, was written yeah and he you know he takes somebody under his wing like she takes you know michael tolliver and and he teaches him and, 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 and shows him through love and benevolence and acceptance a way to find himself. And that's what I find most special about, about, about Queequeg's relationship with, uh, uh, with Greenhorn slash Ishmael. It's, uh, it's, to me, it's, it was an immediate parallel, especially when I spoke with, with uh, Christine McIntyre, our director, about the background and the, and the psychological makeup of the character. I immediately thought, it's Anna Madrigal. And that friendship transcends this the, the, the traditional Western idea of male friendship. There is vulnerability and then there is tenderness. And even there are overtones of maybe homoeroticism that doesn't matter if it's fulfilled or not. It really isn't. But it's not what we think of as the traditional male-to-male friendship, nor is it homosexual. It's somewhere in the middle. And that's what Melville was after, just to break all the norms and, and preconceptions about about humanity and well, he in was this sure particular special friendship ticked off at the at the Christian faith and and in your aria in your aria when you're talking yeah. about Queequeg who's yeah. sitting there holding Pip in his arms who yeah. he just saved from drowning yes, and he yeah. says uh, and what I discovered that Christian charity is no way is simply empty courtesy. What's yes. what's the line? Well, he said. I mean, the first he says, you know, is, this is this is Christian kindness and mercy. This is this is how you treat. You know, the, you know, actions speak louder than words. And um, although this this guy's this boy has been lost at sea, we, yeah, okay, we got him. Put him on the boat. We got to get back to work. You know, uh, it's a machine. And um, and he says, yeah. What would I rather have? I'd rather have a pagan friend. Than the, than the Christian friend at this point, and and at the end of Act One, we we see Greenhorn gets a glimpse 
a, a, a slight glimpse and for me it's it's like life you know it's like you know you just mentioned when you left when you left home it's like when you leave home for the first time go to the city it seems like this big magical place and it's so exciting but you also see sometimes the the unfortunate things that uh, that happen in a big city you know uh, homelessness poverty uh, um, people get forgotten and um, at the end of act one he greenhorn has that, that fantastic aria where he's 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 he wakes up he see and then for for me, Queequeg represents. He's almost like um, I don't want to say he's a brother. He's a father. He's he's. I think the the, the relationships in, with the, with all the men in this in the novel and also in the opera are multi dimensional. It's, uh, it's it's everybody's a, you complex. Know, you know, it's a, there's it's, no straightforward it's a father, character. son, uncle, brother. They're all those all of the male re relationships I think are represented, and um, it's you know that's the beauty of art is that it's subjective, and everyone um, everyone can relate to each facet of each each other's each yeah. of the characters' personalities. Well, gentlemen. It's been a great joy, but we have to stop because <laughs> I, I, I have Stub and Pip outside the door. Are they waiting? So <laughs> thank you for making time. Thank you, Larry. It's oh, been really pleasure. special to sit and talk. And as I've said, I never have a chance to even to, to meet and, yeah. and spend time with artists. And it's been a real pleasure. And I, I, was, I was very pleasantly surprised when I, when, I, when I knew that it was Noah who was going to be my, my greenhorn. And we've, You're like, we've, oh, not that guy. We've bonded, <laughs> we've bonded over this. We've bonded over this. Usually I gained a wonderful friend and uh, I, I'm, I'm so looking forward to our performances. Oh, it's my, get out of here. You're well, amazing. I'm so excited about seeing what's going on. And my calendar does not tell me we have a thing in the theater tonight, so I better check the, the revised schedule. Um, there isn't singing. We're just doing the mast. Tonight. Oh, yeah. a special thing just for the mask. Yeah. Got it. All right, guys. Thanks a bunch. Thank okay. you. Bye. Bye.